0: You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you.
1: Good morning. This is the way. Now I'm doing a spiritual aptitude test here. For those of you that thought that I was quoting something from John 14, six, you're the spiritual crowd. Those of you that immediately thought of the Mandalorian, you need help. This is my Mandalorian mask that my wife got me. I'm so proud of it. I just want to wear it all the time. You should. I just enjoy that so, so much. Wow, what a worship time. Really great. Thank you for being here. Uh, we are slowly making our way uh, week by week uh, as more and more people are feeling more comfortable to come and we're doing our best to make everybody feel comfortable. We still have, for those of you that are out there in, uh, what do we call that? Uh, virtual land. Virtual land. Um, we are still having a row in between that's empty so no one's sitting directly behind you. Uh, we're wearing masks until uh, the singing is, is over with and uh, we're doing our best to... Uh, Make this a place where you can feel comfortable to come and feel safe to do so. So we look forward to seeing all of you back here again. Take your Bibles again and turn to Exodus chapter 3 and 4 is really our text for this five-week series, or maybe wind up being a little bit more than five-week series that we're doing on identity crisis. And our, our text is really centered around Moses. When, when God came to Moses in the third chapter of Exodus, in the burning bush, and he said to Moses, Moses, I want you to go, and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. The Hebrew people had been in Egyptian slavery for four centuries, and that was time, by God's design, to lead them out and lead them into the promised land. And immediately, Moses began to debate with God about this calling. He began to argue with God about whether he was the right person to do this. And so immediately Moses asked this question, this identity question, who am I? Now, that was really the wrong question. The right question would be, who are you, God? And God knew that that needed to be answered. And so in the beginning of chapter 3, God begins to reveal himself to Moses in such a way that Moses would understand who it was that was calling him, and thus would enable Moses to be able to answer the call. He revealed himself in those three ways that we talked about, that I am omnipotent, and so in that we can be secure. I am omniscient, he says, in that we can be safe, because he knows. And I am omnipresent, he says to Moses. Therefore, I am capable of supplying you of everything that you need. Because Moses was going to need everything that God was in order to accomplish what God called him to do because the task was way beyond Moses' capacity in his humanity. And it always is. When God calls us, when he taps us on the shoulder to do something, he always calls us to do something that is beyond ourselves because that requires then that we trust him. But Moses asked this question, who am I? Because, you see, Moses was insecure. Doesn't that make some of you feel good Mm. to to know that Moses was also insecure? He was. Insecurity has been a part of the human condition since the fall in the garden. And his insecurity was revealed in that question, who am I? So we talked about last week the definition of insecurity. And I referred to what I call an insecurity gap. Okay, And we all have insecurities at some level. Uh, it depends on who we are and what our experience has been, about how wide that gap is. But the insecurity gap is the gap between what you feel you should be and what you feel you actually are. Hmm. Between what you feel you should be and what you feel you actually are. That is your insecurity gap. And God challenges us at our point of insecurity in our insecurity gap to allow him to come in and fill that gap to accomplish that which he calls us to do. So Moses says, Well, who am I to go to Pharaoh? In other words, Moses is going, Lord, I'm running from Pharaoh. Okay, you know that. I'm running from Pharaoh. He wants to, t- he wants to have my head for what I did. And then, who am I to go to the people of uh, the Hebrew people and, and tell them to follow me out? They know who I am. They know my past. They know where I, where I come from. They won't believe a word that I say. And then Derek talked about some things that God's revealed to Moses that would enable him to be able to do this because it was going, God was going to be with him, and he was going to fill that gap. Now, why did Moses feel this insecurity? There are several reasons, and that's what we did uh, last week and what we're doing this week and one more time, but really, Moses' first experience or first expression of insecurity was about his past. Everything about this thing that Moses is struggling with is, my past disqualifies me from going to Pharaoh. And my past disqualifies me from going to the Hebrews and expecting that you, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, actually appeared to me, of all people. They're going to go, no, Moses, we don't believe that. And so Moses had a past. And because of that past, Moses felt insecure. So we spent some time talking about how to deal with your past. And we gave you three things. First of all, we are to confess our past, okay? Inwardly, upwardly, outwardly, inwardly to ourselves, outwardly to God, uh, upwardly to God, and outwardly to other people. Then allow God to cover it with forgiveness. We talked about the fact that when we confess, God forgives. And I I like to say it this way, that when we uncover it with confession, he covers it with forgiveness. Mm. When we uncover our sin with confession, he covers it with forgiveness. So we confess it, we cover it forgiveness, and then we allow God to change it. You see, life transformation, folks, is the the irrefutable evidence you have had an encounter with God. Okay? If you encounter Christ, you are going to be transformed. That's right. And and life transformation is that irrefutable evidence that we have been transformed with Jesus okay so so those three things now before we move on to Moses second insecurity I want to come back to this whole concept of forgiveness and talk a little bit more about why we can lean upon God's forgiveness and why God's forgiveness deals with our past in the way that it does and I'm going to carry you a little bit further into this and I'm going to turn it over to Derek to talk about this second reason Moses was insecure but as as I study scripture I'm astounded, literally astounded at the lengths that God's Word goes to to communicate to us the enormity of His forgiveness and what His forgiveness does. It's almost as if he uses, he uses images after images after images after images. You know how you when someone says something one way, you don't really hear it, and then somebody comes along and says it another way, and all of a sudden, oh, I get that. So it's got like... It's like God is saying, how many ways do I need to say it, dummy? How many ways do I need to say this until you're actually going to get what my forgiveness does and why my forgiveness sets you free from your past? You see, let me give you six of them, okay, real quick, and then I'm going to turn it over to Derek. I keep saying real quick. That scares you, doesn't it? Okay. I'm going to do these real fast, Okay. So six things, God's Word, and there are more of them, but I just chose six of them. God's Word tells us He does with our sin, with our past, when He forgives it. To try to help us understand why we are to never allow our past to get in the way of our present and our future, of serving Him. First of all, it says, He cleanses our sin. He cleanses our past. Now this tells us two things about how God sees our sin. First of all, he sees our past as in the same way that we do as dirty, filthy, unclean, right? right. He sees our sin in exactly the same way that we still do. And it is something therefore that needs to be cleansed because it is unclean. Even everything we do When we're trying to be righteous, the scripture tells us. you get this? It's not just the things when we make the decision, hey, I'm just going to go out and just live by the flesh and do my own thing. Even in our fallen condition, when we try to do good things, our righteousness, if you will. The scripture says, that's not righteousness before God. Isaiah 64, 6. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. In other words, the very best that I can bring to God. He says, "Nah, that's not good enough. That's not righteousness. That's filthy rags. But then the scripture says that when we come to Christ, he takes all of that that he has declared unclean and he cleanses it with the purifying blood of Christ. Hebrews chapter, or 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19 says, know this, that we were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, The blood of Christ. 1 John 1, 9. What does he do with this blood if we confess our sins? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What has God done with your past as unclean as it is? What has he done with it? What's the word? It starts with a C. I just said it. He cleanses it. Oxyclean. Oxyclean. That's right. You know, remember Mr. Clean coming up with a fist out of the toilet? That always scared me. God goes beyond that. He cleanses it. Second of all, it's the scripture says that He casts it into the depths of the sea. Micah chapter seven, verse nine. And I like this picture. The sea is a very, very mysterious thing, even still to modern man. But it, to ancient man, it was very, very mysterious. It's, it's this picture like you know you're in a storm and you have to lighten the boat. You have to lighten the ship, or the ship's going to go down. And so you start chunking stuff overboard. That's what He does with our sin. He just chucks it overboard, and it sinks to the bottom of the sea. He cleanses it. He casts it into the depths of the sea. Third, he separates us from it. Hmm. Psalm 103 verse 12, as far as the east is, how far is the east from the west? Very far. (laughs) I mean, how do you even put that in words? We just know that the east and the west are not close to each other. They're way apart from each other. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he separate our transgressions from us. Now look, He doesn't just separate them from himself. It says he separates them from us. He takes my past and he separates my past from me. He separates it as far as the east is from the west. And it's almost like God is saying, who in the world are you, Moses or James or Derek or anybody, to be ragging about your past that your past is in the way of you doing what I'm calling you to do? Who are you?
0: Who do you think you are? I have separated your past from you as far as the East is from the West. Guys, if you're having a hard time understanding this, just think, it's like the difference between the NFC West and the (laughs) NFC East, right? (laughs) Completely separate. Totally different planets. Completely different game.
1: Oh, you know what he's thinking about? What's he going to do this afternoon? I'm thinking about Jesus. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The fourth thing that he does is that he carries it away. The Old Testament gives us a beautiful picture that the New Testament takes and, and, and encapsulates in, in the meaning of its word, forgiveness. In Leviticus chapter 19, instructions are being given to God's people in the wilderness. Period of time for what they are to do on the Day of Atonement. That one day a year when they're to go back and remember the Passover in Egypt, you know, the Passover lamb, and they celebrate that every year, the Passover feast, and the Day of Atonement, okay? Big day when it symbolized what God was doing with the sins of the people. So on that day, the the high priest would have two goats, and one would go into the Holy of Holies and would be sacrificed there, but then the other one was called the scapegoat. And the high priest would go outside of the camp would lay his hands upon the head of that goat, thus symbolically transferring the sins of the people onto that goat and then would release that goat into the wilderness and it would go away. Do you see that picture? What God is saying is now I have, I have, I have I've sent your sin away. I have carried your sin away. And now when we come to the New Testament, The word in the Greek text, the language in which the New Testament was originally written, takes that imagery of Leviticus 19 and in Greek calls it aphemi, which is the Greek word literally to send away to forgive. It's the Greek word that when you look in your New Testament and it says the, 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 uh, the verb is translated to forgive. That's afiemi, which literally in the Greek means to send away. It's working off of that imagery of Leviticus chapter 19 of what God has done when he forgives. He takes our sin and he sends it away. How many more images do we need? He cleanses it. He casts it into the depths of the sea. He separates it as far as the east as the west. He sends it away into the wilderness. How about fifth one? It says he cancels the debt of our sin. Colossians chapter two, verse thirteen through fourteen. He says, when you were dead in your trespasses, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgression, having afieme, having sent away all of our transgressions. Having canceled out, here's a new image, having canceled out the certificate of debt, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, this text is so rich with imagery, because what the Scripture tells us that our sin does is it creates a debt that we owe to God. It creates an IOU to God. We owe him for our sin. Now that IOU in Colossians chapter two is referred to as a certificate of debt. Okay, you know what a certificate is? it says you owe this. The Greek word here, certificate of debt, is kairosgraphos, which is from the two words one hand and the other to write. It literally meant to write with the hand. Okay, so he has he has he has canceled that thing that we have written with the hand. Now, we wouldn't understand that, so the translators translated it as a certificate of debt because that's what it was. Because in the ancient day, if you owed someone a debt, you wrote it out in your own handwriting, and then you gave it to the person to hold to prove that you owed that debt. So if you owed George two goats, you would write it out, Kyler O'Graphos, I write in my own hand, I owe George two goats. Now, when George wanted to get his two goats... You couldn't say, well, I don't owe you two goats. He said, yes, you do. I have it written in your own hand. So you couldn't squirm out of it. Are you getting this? Isn't that a great picture? To write with the hand. That's what we have done with our sin. We have written with our our hand a debt to God. This IOU, if you will. Now, here's the problem. We are bankrupt. In other words, we we don't have George's goats anymore. We don't have two goats to pay George back. We don't have anything in our spiritual bank account to pay God for this chirographos with our own hand. And, but God wants his payment. And so, well, I don't have anything to pay. So this tax tells us that on the cross, Jesus paid the debt that I had written out to God with my own hand and that I could not pay pay so then he paid the debt and when we come to Christ in faith look at what the verse says he takes that caro he takes that certificate of debt and he nails it to the cross and says it is canceled isn't that great imagery how many ways do we need to hear this of what God has done with our sin? I think at least six ways. Okay, one more then. Okay. Then it says, one more, and then I will give it to him. I've only been 17 minutes. I'm doing great. You're doing awesome. He condemns it. He condemns it. Now, this is really interesting. Romans 8:1 says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. In other words, I can't be condemned if I'm in Christ. Okay. Now, what does sin do? Sin condemns us, doesn't it? That's right. But now, there is no condemnation for those that are where? In Christ. Why? Because God took the certificate of debt written out in our own hands and he nailed it to the cross. And when we come to Christ, he cancels that debt out. So, that debt can no longer condemn me. So, here's what happens. I can't be condemned, but you know what God did with my sin? Verse 3 of Romans 8, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Sin condemned me before Christ. And so when I come to Christ, God now condemns sin. Sin has been condemned. It cannot impact me. It cannot separate me from God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why? Because he condemned sin. Isn't that great? It's so good. I love this stuff. And and forgiveness seems to be that one subject that God's word just goes so overboard to help us understand when you come to Christ, let it go. When you come to Jesus, let that past go. Because God has cleansed it. He's thrown it into the depths of the sea. He's sent it away into the wilderness. He's separated as far as the east is from the west. He's canceled the debt by nailing it to the cross. He's condemned sin. That very thing that you are allowing to continue to condemn you, Mm. he has condemned. Moses, do you have any reason to question when I call you to do something that you can't do it because of your past? No, sir, I don't. Derek, do you have anything in your past, now that you're in Christ, that disqualifies you from following Jesus and doing what he says.
0: I mean, after hearing those six reasons, I no, you uh, don't. I don't. Just simple. Just I a don't. Simple? No. No. Will work. No.
1: Do you then stop looking at your past and saying,
0: "I can't because of my past." Now,
1: the second reason for Moses' insecurity is all yours, brother.
0: Yeah, is, uh, he moves from his past to his perceived potential. Uh, God, remember, calls him, and he's not convinced he's the right guy. First of all, because of his past, but second, because of what he says in, in verse 10 of chapter 4. It says, Moses said to the Lord, "Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Now, let's just get right to the bottom of this. This is not how any of us talk. Right. And, <laughs> well, oh the, my lord! I'm not eloquent in. No one does that. Well, that's that's Thai church talk. It's Thai church. Yeah. Uh, he has a, which is by the way, suit in Thai church. The other day, someone was like, "Did he mean like Thailand?" No, oh, not Thai not church. T H A I, but T I E. Right, right. Okay, <laughs> just to clarify. You just to clarify. I like um, Thai food. But, I do too. Yeah. I, it made me hungry when they said it. I don't actually. know if I'd understand anything in Thai church, though. <laughs> Would understand nothing. Yeah, I almost understand nothing in suit in Thai church, to be honest. It's not much different. So, so Moses has apparently a speech impediment of some kind. There's something preventing him from being able to speak well, and that reality prevents him from believing he's the right guy to do what God is asking him to do. In other words, what he's saying is, Lord, you've heard me talk. You've heard me speak. I'm not the guy you want delivering a message. Now, just be honest with yourself for a moment. We can't really fault Moses for this, right? I mean, he has a speech impediment. There is a real problem with the way that he speaks. This isn't faulty human reasoning. If I am on a battlefield and I need someone to get up in a tower and be the lookout for enemies, I'm not choosing the guy with one eye, right? (laughs) There's there's a lot of things I'm choosing James for. There's a lot of things I can do, but that's not one of them. That's not one of them. them, that's anymore, not, no, one of them. That's not right. If you've ever seen me play basketball, bless you if you have. He's so cruel. I, I, I'm not the guy you want making the shot at the at the buzzer You're beater. absolutely right. I'm we not know, that guy. Not. I'm just not that guy. At some point, we all have to realize that we have some limitations that are outside of our control. They're real limitations. They don't go away when you come to faith. You're not all of a sudden magically healed or removed from these limitations. You just have to recognize, I simply can't do this. This is outside of what I am capable of. So Moses is not necessarily wrong. He's being asked by God to deliver this message, and he's bad at speaking. His problem is not his assessment of himself. It's his assessment of who is asking him to do this. God is asking him to do this. And within within the Lord, there are no limitations. Remember, God is omnipotent. He's all powerful. Nothing thwarts his purposes. Even bad speech, even whatever his limitation might be, it will never get in the way or thwart God's ultimate plan and purpose. Nothing can stop what God is pushing into motion. Isn't it interesting that he told Moses to go do the very thing that Moses felt he was least qualified to do, which was give a speech? Which is give a speech. And not only, give a, not only give a speech, but to the most powerful man in the world at the time. I mean, we, we got to remember this. Pharaoh is seen as a god by his people. Pharaoh is immensely powerful. The, nation, the, the, the kingdom of Egypt is immensely powerful. Now, Charleston Hessen didn't have a speech impediment. No, he did not. He did not. But Moses did. They got that wrong. The real they, guy they did. They got that wrong. So, but isn't it interesting? I want, you to, I want to just point out a few things before we really get to the, the, the nuts and bolts here. Moses says in his response... Lord, I can't do this. Now, this is a contradiction, is it not? You cannot call God Lord and then say, no, sorry. Because then he's not Lord anymore, right? He, he may be Lord over some parts of your life, but if you're saying no, then what you're saying is, in this area of my life, you're, you're not Lord. I am. And I say no way. So Lord, we've we got to understand this. Lord is not just a title, right it's not a title that we call god it's a position that god holds over our life just because you call him lord means exactly nothing <laughs> right what does jesus say in matthew chapter 7 22 and 23 he says on that day many will say to me lord lord did we not do all these great things did we not prophesy in your name and cast mm. out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name look at how much we've done for you lord mm. and he says i will declare to them i never knew you depart from me go away you workers of lawlessness. You see, you can call him Lord all you want. It it doesn't mean anything at all. If Jesus is Lord over your life, then his lordship covers all of your life, every aspect and decision of your life. Every, Every time you are faced with a decision, do I do this or do I do that? If Jesus is Lord, then he is ultimately the one in charge of pushing you to one of those decisions. Everything you do. There is no Lord, I can't. Now, why does Moses think that he cannot do this. It comes from a game that we are all in, intimately familiar with, a, a game that we love to play. How many of you love games in here? How many love to play like board games Hello, or video games or, or, video games or yeah. watch sports? We, we all like games of, of some kind, but there's one game that I would wager every one of us play almost every day, and we play it at a high level, and that's what we call the comparison game. <laughs> The comparison game. You're like, oh, crap, I do play that game. Um, Here's what we do. I evaluate whatever it is that I'm doing, whether it's speaking or some sport or whatever, whatever, fill in the blank. And then I compare how I do that thing to everyone else around me. So for Moses, he has evaluated how well he speaks. And if Moses were the only person on the planet, he would think, like, I speak normal. Right? There, there's nothing wrong with the way I speak. It's not until he gets into a crowd and he hears how efficient everyone else is at speaking that he realizes, I'm actually kind of deficient at this. You know, maybe Moses is remembering how Eul Brenner could give a speech. <laughs> the Pharaoh. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's Pharaoh. pretty powerful. He was very that's good a powerful at speaking. And I, I got com- I, I to do this. i not going yeah. to no, make it. No, no chance.
1: So what Some you f- of you are not old enough to remember the Yul Brenner part Yule of Brenner, that. Yeah. How many of you know
0: what I'm talking about? Okay. Yeah, yeah, Yul okay. Brenner made young a good pharaoh. Yeah. All the young people are like Yul who? Um, <laughs> so, here's what he finds out. He finds out that he's not good at speaking. And, and there are two outcomes to this comparison game that we ultimately end up with. It's either one or the other. Either you figure out that you are better than most people at whatever it is that you're doing, and you're filled with this sort of false sense of pride. Like, I'm something, or you figure out that you're actually worse than most people, and then you end up with insecurity. Ah. Am I tracking with any of you so far? Anyone feeling like I'm reading your diary? Okay, good. So Moses, in Moses' case, the second is true. He realizes, I'm not very good at talking. He develops an insecurity about it. So God comes to him and says, hey, I want you to go give a speech to Pharaoh. And he's like, well, Lord, you picked the wrong thing. (laughs) um, Because I've been playing this comparison game, and I'm pretty bad at talking. I got a pass, and I got a problem. I got a pass, and I got a problem. So it lowers what we call self-esteem. Now, I want to just park here for a minute. What is self-esteem? Or, or better, what is esteem? Just the word esteem. I'm glad you asked. There they go again, <laughs> asking the right questions. They ask always the right questions. So the, the, the dictionary definition of esteem is respect and admiration, typically for a person. Okay? So self-esteem then is respect and admiration for yourself. So you either have a high amount of self-esteem, which means you have a great amount of self-respect and admiration for what you are capable of doing, or you have a low self-esteem, which means you have very little respect and admiration for what you are capable of doing. Moses falls into the second category, the low self-esteem category. Now, the problem here is that God desires neither of these things. He doesn't desire high self-esteem. He doesn't desire low self-esteem. God desires No self-esteem, because the problem with high self-esteem and low self-esteem is just that one word, self, (laughs) exactly. it's a big word. It focuses on me. It focuses on how I stack up comparatively. In other words, self-esteem looks inwardly to find worth and value. If I have high self-esteem, I perceive high value, although it's a false sense. If I have low self-esteem, I see no value in myself whatsoever. But the problem is, is, that's not where I derive my worth, is it? My worth ultimately comes from the Lord. God assigns value and worth, not my performance or lack thereof. So I want to give you a truth, and we're going to operate off of this here for a moment. The truth says this, God is not looking for capability. He's looking for cooperation. God is not looking for capability. He's looking for cooperation. He's not looking for capability because no matter, no matter how capable you are, your capability will never be as high as his. So you bring nothing to the table. Moses could be the most eloquent speaker on planet Earth. It still would not have been enough to accomplish what God was asking him to accomplish yeah. on his own. It reminds me of, of one of my favorite passages, Acts chapter 17, when uh, Paul goes and speaks to the Athenians in the Areopagus. And he says in verses 24 to 25, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. And then check out verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, (laughs) since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He doesn't need us, he doesn't need you, okay? He doesn't, when we talk about serving, you know, we need to be servants of the Lord. You need to be servants of one another in the Lord's name. You aren't servants of the Lord. God doesn't need your help. He, everything we bring to the table, I could come to God and say, well, look, God, I, look, I, I, can, I can speak or I, I can think well and I can type fast and I can do everything I've been given, I've been given by God. So it's like my kids coming and saying like, hey, Dad, uh, I, I want to do something nice for you. I, I want to I get you a vacuum. After or, or, a, or, a, or a blender. After or, you pick yourself up off the floor. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll say, okay, well, that's great, Camelia, seven-year-old Camelia. Uh, Let's go to the store, and you can pick one out. So she goes and picks one out. And she says, okay, Dad, we're ready to pay. Get your billfold. <laughs> so who is, really, who is really giving me this thing, right? Yeah. I am. And same thing with, with God. God cannot be served by us because everything we do to serve him, we do with things he's given us to begin with. So he's not looking for capability. He's looking for cooperation. He's looking for someone to say, here I am, Lord. Send me. I'm a crappy speaker, but you'll give me the words. I'm nervous, but you'll give me courage. I'm scared, but you'll give me peace. I'm not the smartest, but you'll give me wisdom. And you say, well, you know what? That, that sounds great, but that sounds really difficult. And what I would say to that is, yeah, well, if it were easy, we wouldn't be talking about it right now. It requires the F word, doesn't it? Faith. <laughs> well, I'm sure glad you clarified that. Hey, to the pure <laughs> all things are pure. I understand they are. <laughs> it's what is what is faith, by the way? Oh God. Taking God at his word. It requires taking God at his word. God says, "I will be with you." Jesus says, "Behold, I will be with you always until the end of the age." He sends his spirit, whom he calls the comforter and the helper. God will not call you to something that he will not equip you to. He will always equip you to the purpose that he calls you to. The question is not, are you capable of doing it? You're not capable of doing it. That's an easy question to answer. The question is, will you take him at his word? And we really get
1: ourselves in trouble when God calls us to do something. We go, Lord, that is perfect. That's right in my will, Absolutely. I can
0: really pull yeah. this one off. Yeah. Because eventually you find out, no you, no, you can't. No, you can't. No, you can't. Well, and that is the other side of this, right? The other side of this is equally important. Some of you really relate to Moses You have low self-esteem, you feel ill-equipped to do the thing that God calls you to. Others of you have high self-esteem. You're not asking, why would God use me? You're asking, why wouldn't God use me? (laughs) (laughs) Look at how great I am. I'm look, awesome. look at how look at how accomplished <laughs> look at how capable I am. Now maybe you don't think this consciously, but but you live like it's up to you. The decisions you're faced with a, an important decision in your life, and and so you write out a pros and cons sheet, which is by the way a good practice, and that's it. There's no prayer, there's no wise counsel, there's no patience. It's just like up to me to figure out what's best for me, and I'm capable of doing that. Look, I did a pro and con sheet, figured it out. Don't need God. <laughs> don't need the Lord's help. That is, that is honestly probably more dangerous than being in the low self-esteem category. Because at least when you are in a low self-esteem category, you, you are already kind of at the bottom. Like you don't yeah. believe you can really do it. So God has to show up or, or it's all game set and match. If I think I'm capable, I'm never going to leave room for the Holy Spirit in my life to actually work. And then I'm going to have uh, just as many, if not more, problems. You see, God doesn't want high or low self-esteem. He wants no, he wants esteem for himself because he's not looking for capability. He's looking for cooperation. Cooperate is an interesting word. I want to talk about that for a minute. You will never hear James and I talk about cooperate with regard to salvation. You cannot cooperate to have faith in Jesus or the gospel any more than a dead person can cooperate. He has to give the faith. He has to give the faith even. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. But after God has made us alive together with Christ, I love that Colossians passage that James just read a moment ago, he's made us alive together with Christ. God has, not us, God has. Once we have been made alive, then he calls us, he sets us apart, which is what he's done with Moses, and then he says, here is my plan and purpose for your life, now go and do it. And at that point, what he's looking for is this sort of spirit of cooperation to say, Lord, you've given me life, you've set me apart, You've forgiven me in my past. Mm. You've done everything that I could not do on my own, so I'm going to trust you here, and I'm just going to do what you asked me to do, and and I'm going to believe that you are going to supply me, Mm. because remember, God is omnipresent with everything I need to accomplish this. So he tells Moses, go to Pharaoh, tell him to let my people go, and I will be with you always. Now, listen, we have an advantage over Moses, uh, and I talked about this a couple weeks ago, we have an advantage over Moses in really two very distinct ways. What has God given Moses in this story, in Exodus chapters 3 and 4, to accompany him to carry out the task that he has called him to? First, he's given him his presence. Remember, he said, I will go with you. And those, the presence of God is manifest how? We talked about this a little bit, I think, last week or maybe the week before, It's manifest through the signs that God gives Moses to perform. So he goes to the Hebrews, he's going to go to Pharaoh eventually, and how are the people going to know that God is with Moses? Remember, he's going to throw the staff down and it's going to turn into a serpent. He's going to have the leprosy trick with his cloak. He's going to pour water out and it's going to turn to blood. Eventually we're going to see the the ten plagues that fall on Egypt, certainly not within Moses' capability. The signs represent the manifestation of God's presence with Moses. Such that if you doubt what Moses is saying, you can't doubt what he's doing, right? God is clearly with him. But secondly, God has given him his people. Specifically, he's given him Aaron. And I think this is an important point that that I want you to, to hold on to. After Moses decides to go, he's equipped with the power of God. He's equipped with all these wonderful signs. And he still has a speech impediment. That doesn't go away. God, I mean... God can turn a staff into a serpent. He can turn water into blood. You would think most would be like, hey, uh, can you work that magic on my mouth a little bit? And if I really wasn't <laughs> all impressed with the speech, but he, he was impressed with the, the, the power. Absolutely. Yeah. And so God says, you know what? I'm going to send Aaron with you, and he's going to speak on your behalf. Hmm. You're going to just tell Aaron everything, and then Aaron will be your voice. He will be your mouthpiece, and I will give you the words. Isn't that great? So he has his presence, and he has his people. But what advantage do we have over Moses? We we do, because in both of those categories, we have a better version than what Moses has been given. You see, God has given us his presence as well, not with signs and wonders, but with the very indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. That when you come to faith in Christ, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says. That you are given the gifts of the Spirit. The Spirit manifests gifts in your life that you are to use for the building up of the body of Christ. You have the very presence of God within you, such that you have intimacy with the Father in a way that even Moses, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, didn't have. God appeared to Moses in a burning bush, but we have much more than a burning bush. We have the indwelling power of his presence. But secondly, God has given us his people as well, and, and not just Aaron, but he's given us the church the community of faith, the the full expression of the body of Christ. And again, the way these two things play together are so wonderful, so beautiful, that that God gives you, if you are born again in Christ, you have the indwelling spirit within you, you have been given a spiritual gift, at least one. It could be a a significant gift that is meant to be world-changing, a Billy Graham kind of gift, and it may just be a a simple gift of, of something that you're meant to use to serve just The local body. And what I want you to understand is both of those are equally important because both of those are attached to your plan and purpose. And so when God calls you and he says, I want you to whatever. I'm not the Holy Spirit, so I can't answer that question for you. But certainly God has called many of you to something. You have that kind of gnawing inside of you, whether it's teaching, whether it's hospitality, whether it's prayer or or imparting faith to people, encouragement, whatever the case may be. God is gnawing at you inwardly, that's the Holy Spirit saying, hey, you know what you're called to do, you know what you're supposed to be doing, you know it's there, stop denying it, stop silencing me, stop trying to shut me up, you know that this is what you're supposed to be doing, and then that spirit, when you will walk in cooperation with God, will give you the giftedness that you need to do that. And what's awesome is when you do that, who are you impacting? The church. Paul says that the the body of Christ is like a human body. It has a bunch of different parts. And when all the parts are doing what they're supposed to be doing, the body works harmoniously. So if you're a thumb, stop trying to be an eye. If you're an ear, stop trying to be a foot, right? Do what you are meant to do. There is nothing more powerful and nothing more beautiful, honestly, than someone operating within their giftedness. But you will never get to this point if you don't Stop playing the comparison game. If you don't stop looking at how well... I remember when I, when I first started preaching here, 2012, the first time that James had me come and, and teach. And, and something, I, I don't know, it had to have been the Holy Spirit because it wasn't me. But there is a temptation in a lot of young people to mimic the person that they are learning from. And I resolved very early on, I am not going to try to be James. James. I will fail miserably in every People category. People will breathe a sigh of relief yeah. on that one. <laughs> well, it, it, would, it, would be, it, would, it would be disgenuine yeah. to who I am. And, and, and so this is what happens, though, is a lot of young guys can come in ministry and go like, well, I'm not as, I don't, I don't preach as well as he does, or I don't, I don't think about the scripture the way he does. And, and I just determined, you know, I'm going to be okay with that. I'm not James. I'm myself. I've got to figure this out on my own. Now that's one area God has given me the grace to be able to separate that. I do this in every other category of my life though where I'm playing the comparison game just like you are. And you gotta get away from that. You know, I've said
1: this before and when, every, I think every time I say it most people don't believe it. But I am an introvert. Everything about me yep. is introverted. Yep. Yet God has forced me to spend my life on a stage. Uh and so inadequate for that. If scholarship would be much more suited to my temperament. I love scholarship. I love the cloistered away, studying, thinking. I'm a thinker. Uh, my, my comfort zone is alone. That's where I thrive. I'm regenerated when I'm alone. I read. Uh, if, if I walk into a room full of people, my comfort zone is sitting in the corner on the back chair somewhere. That's where I'm comfortable. And that was really a dichotomy for me knowing and watching and looking at pastor. I go, man, those guys are, I mean, you got to be a people person. You got to be out there. You got to be shaking. You got to be pressing the flesh. And you know what God did? He gave me an errand. I'll not mention his name, but one of my good friends was one of those guys that could light up a room when he walked into it. He was also in seminary and and, and headed for ministry, pastoral ministry. And, and he was just, he, he was gregarious and outgoing. And so without him even knowing it, I started watching him and just started mim- mimicking him. Now, I'm not the same as he is by any means, but I did learn from him some things, the way to step out of my comfort zone into at least being more outgoing than I would have been. And that That forced me to trust God, Lord, how do I live in the spotlight when I hate it?
0: Mm.
1: I hate it. I'd love to teach, but you can't teach outside of a spotlight. (laughs) I love to, I I love to do those kinds of things of of ministry, but really where I'm comfortable is reading a book Mm
0: -hmm.
1: all alone. And and that has been one of those, to me, has been one of those most evident parts of God's call on my life to do what I have done is because it is so far out of my wheelhouse. It is so far out of my comfort zone. And I think that he often does because when he, when we, when we operate in our own strengths, we tend to want to take the credit for it. That's right. And we tend to want to depend on ourselves completely without depending upon him or depending upon those people that he puts in our path. Yeah you know, to, to help us along and to fill in those gaps. If Moses had Aaron. Aaron came along. He was exactly what Moses needed. And, and through the years, I've watched this. God has done that in my life, and, and I, I, he's done it in, in Derek's. And he'll, he'll do it in your life. So when we start saying, God, I can't because I don't speak well, or that's not in my wheelhouse, that's not in my comfort zone, that's often the very reason he calls us to do it. That's
0: exactly right. Because it requires then that we take him at his word. Our identity is so much bigger than just ourselves you got to get that. It has nothing to do with your capability. It has nothing to do with your past. It has to do with the God who calls you and the people he calls you to. And if you can start to see that, that your identity actually has a place within a larger scope, then all of a sudden things drastically change on your outlook. Good. We're going to come back next week and, and talk a little bit more about this. Okay. Yeah. No, just on, the, on who we are. Oh, on that one, yes. Yeah. And yeah.
1: we'll be hitting thir- Moses' third yeah. area of insecurity uh, and maybe fleshing this one out a little bit more. I hope this is practical for you. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, God's Word is, is incredibly practical. If, if we just looked at God's Word as historical stories that were cool and, and all that kind of stuff, well, God's Word really wouldn't have any application for, for right. us, but it's alive and, and sharper than any two-edged sword. And he can take a story like Moses' Uh, because Moses was human, just like we are, and and see how God worked in Moses, and we can say, well, that's how God wants to work in me. That's right. Um, And so we'll finish it up next week.
0: Well, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning that you've given us to, uh, again, open your word and glean from it uh, such practical, convicting, and and alternatively encouraging uh, truths from it. And I pray that your spirit, we know, is speaking to every individual heart right now. And my prayer is that we would be receptive to what the spirit is saying. Some folks in here have been trying to silence that voice inside of them, the small voice of the Holy Spirit that is saying, you know what you're made for, you know what you're called to do. And I pray, God, this morning that they would actually hear that voice and embrace it and begin walking in that spirit of cooperation with you, trusting that their past is forgiven and that they will be equipped with exactly what they need to carry out your plan and purpose for them. And ultimately, Lord, we know that when we do that, we find ultimate fulfillment because we're doing what you called us and made us to do. Bless us, Lord, and keep us safe. And for those online or watching from a distance, Lord, be with them as well. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, let me make you aware real quickly of one thing. Uh, Chris announced it at the beginning of, cl- uh, the, beginning of the welcome, but I want to just reiterate it to you. We've been uh, nine weeks now into our cults class on Wednesday night, and many of you have asked, when are we going to cover Mormons? and uh, the Latter-day Saint movement. And we are gonna be starting this Wednesday and next Wednesday, two weeks of history and then doctrine in a Q&A, except for it won't be me teaching. We are having uh, Dr. Travis Kearns, the uh, Assistant Professor of Apologetics and World Religions at Southwestern here. He's the guy that I learned from in the cult setting, and he is a Mormon scholar. He's not Mormon, but he's a scholar about Mormons. Uh, He lived in Salt Lake for six years uh, doing missions to Mormons and uh, has taught at Southern and is now at Southwestern, and he will absolutely... Blow your mind if you have ever—if you're one of those people that's like, "Well, I didn't think Mormons were that different than us." Hmm. Come to this class because you will find out how drastically different it is and why it's so damaging. And what an unprecedented opportunity to get it from someone who is not only a
1: scholar—he's been a practitioner. He's an expert of actually speaking yeah. to Mormons. So Six, that'll be a great. Six forty-five
0: Wednesday night. Hope to see you there. God bless All you. Right.